0: Do I not like that? It's another wretched night for England at a major
1: tournament. Nice to see the home fans be here. What a save! Caught back! Lampard! Brilliant! It was in, though. surely crossed the line. people are on the pitch. Michael all
0: the way for England. Bang. Oh. Right but
1: they're looking very lively. What a lovely first-time ball. Lineker side, coming in on it now!
0: Magnificent Goal! Hello and welcome to Magnificent Goal, a podcast that looks back through the history of the England football team. I'm Stephen Toplis, a podcaster and big England fan, and this podcast is dedicated to all things Three Lions. In every episode, we'll be taking a deep look into a topic about the England team, telling the stories behind the tournaments, the qualification campaigns, memorable games, the managers, legendary players and much more in between. I'll be joined by a host of guests as we go through the history of the England team, but also examine what it's like to be an England fan and share our memories of watching the Three Lions over the years. In this first episode, we'll be going back to where it all started as we cover a fixture that began over 150 years ago. It's the first ever international football fixture, the one that's been played the most and one that is still relevant today, England versus Scotland. We'll be taking a look at the origins of the fixture and how this famous rivalry unfolded over the years by picking out some key meetings between the two sides from the very first in 1872, right through to the modern day. Joining me for this first episode is Glenn Isherwood, football historian, writer, and founder of England Football Online. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Stephen. And Davey Naylor, curator of englandstats.com. Hello, Davy. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Glenn. Before we get into England versus Scotland, Coming to you first, Glenn, just tell us your story of following England over the years and how England football online came into being.
2: Um, I grew up in the 70s. Uh, one of my earliest memories is the 1970 World Cup. So England internationals fascinated me from, from that point. And I think because every England international was like an event, it was a unique occasion. I mean, I followed club football as well. I follow all football, but I think it was only years later that I started to realise that England had a special um, feeling for me. I, I was memorising England games at that point. I, I just love to keep my own records as well. Um, in the 80s, I started writing a book about Wembley as well, which was combining England internationals with cup finals because I was fascinated by which players had played in, in both types of games. Uh, and then I had a couple of books published on that. And then in 2004, uh, I, I was thinking about England kits uh, and I went loved all the kits in the 70s uh, and whether there was a history of it. And I started looking online and I found this website, englandfootballonline.com, where they'd started their own history of the kits. But there were loads of gaps in it. It only went back to about 1970. And I thought, well, I can fill the gaps in there. Uh, and that, that developed even further. Uh, I then joined the website as a regular contributor uh and that that branched out. I eventually wrote a book on the England shirts uh three lines on the shirt it became the official history uh last year but the but the website has just grown from there uh worked with chris goodwin um we split the work up between us. he does the uh the player histories, amazing biographies of each player match uh match summaries we call them summaries but they're actually quite detailed accounts of every single England match 1070 something whatever it is at the moment uh and we just developed I've done histories of England on television the history of the England amateur team uh their history of the England kits as well is on there and anything that's England related Uh, we're trying to cover absolutely everything and it's just a never-ending task and it's great because people write into us as well uh, filling in gaps or they use us uh, for information that they can't get from the FA like on old players so we feel like we're providing a service as well to to a lot of people. I must say it is a
0: fantastic resource and quite often I've, I've gone on there and then ended up down rabbit holes about the England team and a couple of hours have passed and before I know it, I've trawled through hundreds of pages and, and, and learned so much. It really is a tremendous resource for any England fan. And Davy, coming to you, your memories of following England over the years and the story behind EnglandStats.com and, and where that began.
1: Well, like Glenn, my story is, is very similar, uh, although uh, it started a little bit later and of course... England weren't at any world cups in in the uh, 70s after the 1970 world cup so i had to wait till 1982 so that was my real first memories of 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 following England. in fact actually i was there um i was only 9 years old but uh, i was not to watch any football but but we went on holiday to barcelona just so happened during the world cup very odd um thing for my parents to decide to do um but i uh, Soaked up all that atmosphere. All that. I didn't go to see any matches, but I was aware of, I was far too young at the time, uh, but I was aware of the atmosphere of the World Cup, and it was absolutely fascinating. And um, so and I've I, just like Glenn, I follow I follow all kinds of football, all, all other sports um as well, um, and have been interested in statistics and things like that for a number of years. And really the way that England stats got started was probably how all of these things get started it was down to an argument in a pub me and a friend back in 1998 couldn't decide i can't remember what the argument was about but it was about how many caps a certain player had during the um during the world cup that year so the very next day we just de- we decided that we would start doing a database of players so we can settle these arguments once and for all and that uh started out as a simple database um on a spreadsheet i think And then it grew um, and I learned how to um, design websites and um, it grew and grew and grew and it's still going to this day. And I I spend like almost all my uh, waking hours when I'm not working um, to the chagrin of my wife as well, doing um, England statistics and researching all matches. Um, So it's become a kind of like um, a love affair, really. but um it's something that i enjoy doing and um as 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 um more and more england matches come along it, it's 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 more interesting but i i, I also find uh, researching the past matches as well um very interesting as well and trying to sort of like chronicle uh, the record of, of the england football team down the years
0: and again it's it's a great resource that you have there with england stats and there is that chronological element to the England team, which I think is is very interesting and something which I think both sides really do touch upon well and, and cover in their own very unique, but very interesting ways. So England versus Scotland, it's the international fixture that's been played more times than any other. It might not be played as much nowadays as it once was, but it's a fixture that still stirs up emotions and gives the teams involved the opportunity to get one over on the old enemy. In the run-up to the 1999 playoffs for Euro 2000, BBC Online said that the fixture has represented all that is good and all that is bad about football since the fixture began. Which I think is quite a nice summary of everything that's gone on between England and Scotland on the football pitch over the years. As of the modern day, the teams have played 115 times. England have won 48 of those fixtures, Scotland 41, and there's been 26 draws. The most recent meeting being at the European Championships when England-Scotland played out a 0-0 draw in the group stages of the COVID-delayed Euro 2020. The first official England-Scotland match took place in 1872, But before then, there'd been a couple of unofficial meetings, five of those in total, with the first taking place in 1870. Glenn, can you give us a bit of a flavour of what happened in those meetings and what happened in those years leading up to 1872?
2: Yeah, well, the first representative match, I think, was between London and Sheffield in 1866. And uh, Charles Alcock, who was the head of the FA, um secretary was he? Anyway, he uh he was keen he was from Sunderland and he wanted to uh further the game further north uh so including Scotland as well. So he was keen to get an England-Scotland match to take place. But initially in eighteen seventy uh there was no Scottish Football Association uh and I think there were only four clubs in Scotland that played to the same rules as the Football Association, because the game was still evolving at this time. You know, it had started out from the the public schools and then you would got Cambridge rules, you've got Sheffield rules as well. And so there there was still some dispute over which rules applied in in which games and some compromise. Uh, So they organised games in London at Kennington Oval, the Oval Cricket Ground, as it is now. Uh, and there were five games played over a two year period eighteen seventy to seventy two uh so there was an england team uh and a Scotland team that you maybe describe more as london scottish uh there were a few of them were weren't actually Scottish, or it's been mentioned just a liking for whiskey was enough to get you into that team so it was it was a bit of an old boys network uh and they played these games they were quite close games, I think England won three and two were drawn. Uh, But then I think it became clear by late 1872 that they needed to go up to Scotland. uh, And I think an invitation was sent out and Queen's Park uh, took over the organisation of the Scotland team for that first game. Uh, It's an interesting um, sign of those times that it was played on Saturday, the 30th of November uh, and originally, the FA wanted it on the preceding Monday, which was the twenty sixth, twenty fifth, maybe. Uh, and so that was be- um, the the amateurs that were running the game in England uh, weren't quite happy to play on a Monday because they didn't have to work for a living; they had all this spare time. But uh, the Scottish players uh, they were also amateurs, but they also had day jobs as well, so Monday wasn't an option for them. So that's why it became a Saturday game. It's also St Andrew's Day as well, the thirtieth of November. So they thought it was quite a, a
1: fitting yes, that is true, mm. fitting day to, uh, to 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 in Scotland to play the first match. I don't know whether that was. It might have been a coincidence. Mm. I don't know.
0: It feels like quite a fitting yeah. setting, doesn't it? And on the day, well, in the in the days leading up to the game, it had been raining in Glasgow. On the morning, that turned into a drizzle, and then morning winter sunshine after that, and then a fog which would go on to briefly delay the start of what would be football's oldest rivalry. Well, I suppose if you've got 151 years to come, an extra 20 minutes doesn't matter. But at the end, that 2pm kickoff time was pushed back to 215 4,000 people were in the crowd and they each paid a shilling entry fee. And that was to enter the West of Scotland cricket ground, Hamilton Crescent in Partick the setting for the first official international football match. And the England team, I think, is um, quite interesting in so much it's, it's very representative of where football was at the time. The team is as follows. In goal, Robert Barker. Then we have Harwood Greenhall, Reginald Welch, Frederick Chapel, John Maynard, John Brockbank, Charles Clegg, Arnold Smith, Cuthbert Ottaway, who's the captain, Charles Chenery and Charles Morris. That's the first starting eleven for England in an official international match. Selected by Charles Alcock, who was unable to play himself due to injury, this side was made up of players from nine different clubs, including Notts County, Wanderers FC, Crystal Palace and Oxford University. The entire Scotland eleven was made up of players from Queen's Park, who were the leading Scottish club of their day. And three of those players, interestingly, were members of other clubs, William Kerr of Granville FC and the Smith brothers, who were both with South Norwood FC. Now, England lost the toss and were made to kick up the hill to the upper goal by Scottish captain Robert Gardner, who was also the goalkeeper for Scotland. That sounds to me like the earliest form of gamesmanship and it was happening before the very first match even kicked off. What do you reckon David? Oh absolutely I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. It, this as you mentioned this game
1: finishes a, a drab nil-nil draw um which interestingly bookends our England Scotland games um the la- latest one being a rather drab nil-nil draw. Um but the interesting one of the there are a few interesting things about this uh, the, the england's first choice keeper alex alexander morton who does appear in the second game um he's unavailable for this game so they don't really have a goalkeeper so unusually um as you said robert barker starts in goal for the first half but then he switches places with Maynard for the second half also out of note um, in those days they didn't change ends at half time they changed after every goal um unless there wasn't any goals, and then they did change at halftime. <laughs> it's a very peculiar rule. Alcock was actually there. He was an umpire for the... So, so you'd have a referee and you'd have two umpires, um, along with a chap called H.N. Smith, who was the other umpire, and William Key was the, was the referee. Um, The other thing of note as well in this game, England play was seven forwards. So... It, the game was, and it's, it's, it's so bizarre that this game ends n- nil-nil. Scotland have six forwards. Um, apparently they go with two full-backs and two half-backs. England go with just one full-back. I don't know how this formation works. I don't know. I, I'd love to have seen it. Uh, one full-back and two half-backs and seven forwards, which is, is quite extraordinary. You can't imagine that right now. It's it's an, like an inverted Christmas tree. They play out 90 minutes of um, of... Nothing much to know. There were certainly no goals. Um, also, in these early internationals, there are certain things that we take for granted in football, like that there, there, there's there's no uh, crossbar or anything like that. And, and and you could, I believe, in something that you could call a mark, like you can do in rugby as well. You can, when you can actually, you know, uh, something. Although I do believe they were trying to play to the English rules, because as Glenn said, there, there wasn't any um F, the the FA of scotland didn't actually appear to It wasn't formed till um the next following year 1873. Mm-hmm. um so um they had to play to to ink to ink to the english rules um and i don't know whether you could describe this game as what we would call football now it it probably resembled more a cross between football and rugby i would say um, the way that it was played. So, um, and, and as the game goes along, as it evolved uh, through the years, obviously it becomes more more things are codified. Uh, we have we, we then you know in the next century we get you know FIFA come along and and take on 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 the the, uh, the rule making sort of song, along with the body called IFAB. Uh, but in these days, it, it, it's 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 it, I think a, a glorified mess. I think. Uh, is is best described it, and and um, it must be a wonderful sight to see um all these men running around. Um, and yeah, with 5,000 people watching at a cricket ground in Scotland, it must have been absolutely fantastic. I wish I had a time machine I could go back and see. I think There's it was some... an
2: interesting contrast Sorry, of styles as well. Uh, England apparently were much bigger players, they were carrying much more weight, uh, and Scotland had as what became their tradition, smaller, faster players. And it was remarked upon, I think, that they they discovered passing the ball. I mean, it shows how how basic the game was at that point and how similar it was to rugby. Whereas the the English players would just run with the ball uh, as far as they could until somebody stopped them. And hopefully one of their teammates would then continue the run. Uh, whereas Scotland, they'd realise that if you pass the ball before the opponent gets to you, you can maybe get a better chance to score. Uh, But (laughs) neither was successful. There was one incident in the first half where the... uh, You could say they hit the bar, but they hit the tape. I think that was the closest uh, that came to scoring, and there was some argument as to whether it had actually gone in or not, Uh, but the umpires ruled against it. But I, I think generally the fans or the, the spectators uh, enjoyed the game, even though it was nil-nil. So it must have b- been considered of uh, high quality.
0: It, it seems like it, it went down well, and reports suggest that the Scotland players actually gave three cheers to their English counterparts after the game, which certainly wouldn't happen in today's game, put it that way. <laughs> England repaid no. the favour, and the two sides dined together afterwards in Carrick's Royal Hotel. And it was at that point agreed that the game would go on and become a regular occurrence, which, of course, it did. And it was played every every spring, at least after that, up until 1984 and then on to 1989. But we'll skip back again to the early 1870s. And, Davey, it wasn't all that long, was it, until the next meeting and when England enjoyed their first victory in the fixture.
1: No, it was it was the next spring. The the so the fixture became a permanent fixture, and it was played effectively, barring wars, in either March or April. Uh, for effectively the next hundred years, there are there are a few exceptions: Ibrox disaster in nineteen oh two, and a friendly uh, in nineteen seventy three, which um, was uh, um, the centenary of the, the the Scottish FA. Um, but in nine in in eighteen eighty eight. Wales and Ireland were entities as well, so there became what was known as the Home Championship or the British Championship as well. Uh, that's a bit further down the line, but the, but the, the the next match, the return match on the eighth of March, eighteen seventy three, was played at the Oval, Kennington Old Oval, and yes, uh, we have the very first goal, very first international goal, uh, scored by William Kenyon Slaney, who went on to become a big army, army man. I think he was in the um, I think he was in the, I think he played for Wanderers. He was attached to Wanderers, but also he was in, in uh, Royal Engineers or something, I can't I exactly remember, but he, I think he became a brigadier or a colonel or something like that in the army. And um, Alexander Morton, the chap who was missing, um, the goalkeeper who was missing from the first fixture, he is now available and he he tends goal. He's also captain as well. And he's also, at age 41, the oldest debutant and the oldest debutant keeper as well. Um, as well. He still, I think, holds quite a few records. And he's, I think he's uh, uh, the second oldest. uh, His 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 birthday was the the furthest back in time as well, eighteen thirty five or something, something like that. England run out forty two winners. I do believe, although I'm not, maybe Glenn might be able to correct me on this one. But as as he has he mentioned before, they it was a team mostly made up of London Scottish. I don't think because the Scottish FA existed really at that point, there was no one to pay the train fares for the Scottish players to go down to London. So they picked a team. And I think also, I think Olcott had a bit of a say in the picking of the Scottish team as well, although I'm willing to be corrected on that. Um, And they were mostly from, from London clubs or, South East clubs of, of London. I mean, uh, there are yeah, uh, there are very few uh, very tenuous links to, to Scotland. Um the, the the Scottish chap who Henry Henry Rayner Taylor, who scores the first Scottish goal, he's um he was born in India, um, for example. Um and there are very yeah, it's 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 a better game. There are six goals in this game. So um England do get a, uh, you know, do get the first win, the first ever goal and the first international win. Under their belts um, uh, for this. Um, it seems to be a, a, a much better match and um, all out attack football. Again, both teams had six forwards. Um, both teams had full backs and halfbacks, two or two of each. And they were, they were, as Glenn said, they would they would just run at the goal until they were stopped. And, 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 and then passing was not a thing in those days, particularly. And they would change ends after every goal, basically. Mm-hmm.
2: That's interesting what you say about that also being a London Scottish team because following this game, it was a big run of success for Scotland. So Scotland were really on top after this, and I guess that coincides with the creation of the Scottish FA and a proper Scotland team, and England just couldn't handle it. Uh, There were three heavy defeats after that. 7-2 in 1878, 6-1 to Scotland at the Oval in 1881, which was the biggest ever. Uh, home defeat for england so uh england were completely clueless over the next decade or so scotland were just running rings around them literally
1: absolutely they they yeah they were they were no, it's not really until the 1890s really that england start to become better better at a game i i guess i guess as you were saying that the, the scots had kind of worked out the passing aspect of it and they were they were good at it wasn't just dribble and and hoof it they were, oh, let's pass to, no. to a teammate. This that's the way you do it. And and they did. And in the in those early days, I mean you, we didn't get the um the British championship till eighteen eighty-four. But in those early friendly games, I think there were uh ten or so um friendlies every every March. Um and yet yeah, Scotland were very dominant in 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 almost all of them.
2: And I think the team spirit played a big part in that as well, because the amateurs uh, all, all came from different places, but there were only a handful of clubs uh, supplying Scotland with their teams. So they're all very familiar with the, the style of play, playing together. And I don't think it was until professionalism came in that uh, England started to uh, dominate a bit more or win a few games. Uh, and that was with the advent of uh, the North and the the Midlands uh, providing clubs and the football league starting up as well, and then and professionalism and professionals coming into the England team. Uh, there was a bit more intelligence, intelligent play, and
1: and and with professionalism became the, it almost fractured the sport like it had done with um, rugby, which split into union and league. That that fractured, and that was down to. Mm. Uh, the difference between amateurism and, and and professionalism, um, and and association football almost went the same way. They managed to um, not do that, thankfully, but they they could quite easily in in a parallel universe be two forms of of soccer, uh, as we call it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the amateurs sort of grudgingly accepted the professionals into the England team, uh, but the, the captain of the England team always had to be an amateur and. Uh, he had to be referred to as Sir, and they they couldn't dine together. So there were there was a real us and them uh, attitude. And
1: and and, and uh, later on, they 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 would play different teams. Like the, 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 I guess it, this is the persistence of the F, the the English FA and their arrogance, and and you know they they were the better side. But they would send the amateurs to go play um, islands. Yeah and the professionals would would play the bigger games against scotland you know wales and ireland they they'd send in fact there was sometimes where they'd actually play the game on the same day the, the england would play mm-hmm. ireland and then while while a better team would go go play go play scotland that happened quite a lot they, they that that was that was a somebody's crazy idea um back in yeah. the in the 1890s
2: and i think one of the reasons for another reasons for england sort of Becoming the dominant team during that period was that uh, Scottish, lots of Scottish players had seen the rise of professionalism in England and they were all sort of defecting over the border to join these new rising Football League clubs, getting paid more money. Uh, they were becoming better players, but the Scottish FA equally wouldn't. Well, they, they were worse than the FA in that they wouldn't accept amateurs, they wouldn't accept professionals at all, and they wouldn't even let them play for the Scotland national team. So yeah so you can see this fraction that 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 that, ha- that happened as, as you know uh, rugby union
1: is is mostly played in the south and rugby league is mostly played in the north it's very similar in in association football you had the the gentlemen the amateurs were mostly southern based teams um and the northern based teams who kind of like wanted to get paid I mean I don't blame them to be honest um yeah that they, they they became what's known as professionals yeah so it kind of like it was it was a the early days of, of association football was very fractious and very um, there were there were infighting and you know, it was yeah pretty horrible
2: yeah quite a
0: lot. We're going to jump forward now to nineteen twenty eight and a memorable day for the Scots, one to forget for England, and this match on Saturday the thirty first of March nineteen twenty eight gave birth to the Wembley Wizards as Scotland ran out 5-1 winners at Wembley and basically ran rings around England. Glenn, can you give us a bit of background as to where the two teams stood at the time of this game and how things played out on the pitch that day?
2: Well, I think Scotland uh, was still reliant or having no success with the, the speedy wingers. England had an awful time in the 1920s this was a period when uh, it was a, a committee of selectors that picked the England team for each game. I think there were 14 of them. And during this period, England teams were selected by committee. There were 14 people who got in a room and they'd, they'd all viewed matches. There wasn't a schedule of matches for each to go to. So it was all what they decided to go to. And they'd come in with their favourites and then they'd vote for each position, right? Who were we going to have the goalkeeper? Who were we going to have a left back? Who were we going to have a right back? etc. And there was no no thought to team understanding or team continuity. And during this period, there were 66 one-cap wonders. Players were selected maybe on a good performance in a cup semi-final, for example. And then they made one mistake in the international and that was it. That was the end of their career. So there was no sort of encouragement and players were just picked and dropped on a on a whim half the time. So and England were awful during this period. Uh I think uh, Wales won the British Championship during this time. I'm not sure England uh won it at all. Or maybe earlier in nineteen twenty. Um when it came to that nineteen twenty eight game, they were just completely dominated by the the Scottish players. Uh I got there was one brilliant quote uh I got from this game in the press and it said in one movie the ball went 11 times to a Scottish player without touching an English boot or head so they, they were chasing shadows half the time and so there were no excuses really Scotland were just far better than England, the players played like, like they were strangers uh, and it took them a long time to realise what was happening because you couldn't, these selectors were still there and they were still doing the same things uh, interesting. The next time they played at Wembley in 1930, it was the first time that the players had got together and had a team talk the day before the game, uh, and England won that one five two. So the players would meet for the first time before that at the game. So there, there was there was no chance of building up any team spirit. There was there
1: was also you're right. Mm. There was also no coaching structure as well. The, the players would mm. just meet up. And they'd play how they would play for their clubs, um, and they would just go about and doing it. and And if you happened to sort of click, great. If you didn't, there was no. The only time there really was coaches when when they started doing overseas tours, the 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 FA committee would select the players, and then they'd select a coach who would go off. But he didn't. I mean, it, it wasn't till Alf Ramsey was was uh, manager that um, he had overall choice of selection. Um, uh, above the committee, you can imagine these fusty old men smoking their pipes in, in 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 the FA, you know, boardroom, arguing about who's the best left back, and and it, there would be prejudice involved there. Um, that, that that you know, people didn't want uh, that, that people from different associations, different county, sort of like FA members, wanted their players to be played, and they would end up yes, doing this kind of ridiculous voting thing to to to. So you can imagine why there were so many one cat wonders because one guy got his way one day and 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 you know the next next fixture they got another they got the other guy got another fixture and that that whole idea that, that the, the the arrogance as well that they would just let the lesser players the not our first, our second eleven go play ireland or wales as well so a lot of players got their caps though that way because I didn't want their better better players to, you know, because it was it was lesser for some reason. Go, going playing those international matches, not 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 going to play Scotland. So well into the twenty, in fact, up until the, the, the advent of the Second World War, this was going on. And don't forget, by this time, everybody was doing the WM formation, uh, which had been um, started by I think uh, it was Preston North End. I think um, had had started this system, and for like fifty years everybody played this system with uh you'd have uh two full backs you'd have uh left right and center half back and then you'd have your five forwards um outside right inside right same on, on the left yeah. and center forward and everybody played this system there was no tactics whatsoever when it came to a formation it 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 worked and everybody up until the second world war and it was only really when Walter Winterbottom came along who was the first England manager, they decided to actually change it. Although during most of his reign, they they, they did did the same thing. And he certainly had no say um, in in, in team selection. But I'm getting a bit forward now. We're we're still in 1920s, aren't we?
2: One uh, other interesting factor about that 1928 game, I think was partially used as an excuse, uh, but it also shows up some of the attitudes at the time. I think there were three Huddersfield Town players Uh, in the England team. And Huddersfield, one of the top teams of the 20s, they won the league three years in a row. They were midway through uh, an FA Cup semi-final. It was in between the first game and the replay or between the replay and the second replay. And very much the attitude of England players at this time, the priority was the FA Cup. It wasn't even the league title and the fans as well. There were much bigger crowds to FA Cup ties than league games. And there were much bigger Crowds at the Scotland games at Hamden than they were in England. I mean, even at Wembley, uh, they they didn't get they didn't get hundred thousand crowds in those days. They were they were much less. Um, so <laughs> it, it wasn't massive priority as it was was for Scotland at the time.
1: Uh, there were actually sorry to correct you, Ken. There were four Huddersfield uh, players. Four. There was uh, four, four Huddersfield players. Tom Wilson, Bob Kelly and uh, Billy Smith uh, on that that team sheet um the, the probably your um right. podcast listeners will probably only recognize one of the names um Dixie Dean Everton center forward Dixie Dean played in that game but you're absolutely right about the uh, about, about about that this it was the FA Cup was by far the biggest prize in English football at yep. this time um and uh, yeah, there was only eighty thousand people in Wembley to do the bigger games. Was always up up at, at Hamden in Scotland. They, they had That's world it. record attendance. In fact, coming up, we're going to get you know one hundred and fifty thousand people, which is still a record in Europe, um, only beaten by by um, uh, some games in in Brazil, I think, and Argentina, mm. I think, who have had got bigger stadiums. But yeah, th- th- it wasn't it wasn't um, particularly. I mean, 80,000 sounds quite good, but in those days, for an England-Scotland fixture, no, nowhere near.
2: No. And, uh, and Scotland... Sorry, God,
1: go on. I was about to say, uh, the five scorers for for um, for Scotland that day were all called Alex. Alex Jays. Uh, uh, Alex Jackson scored a hat-trick, <laughs> and Alex James got the other two. That was the only thing I was going to mention. Sorry, Glenn, carry
2: on. Fun fact. <laughs> Fun fact. Uh, yeah, it, it was just on the... Uh, attendances and the phenomenon of uh Scottish fans converging on London for the weekend and taking over the city. I mean that that isn't uh, a modern phenomenon. Uh actually going back a bit, 1891, when they played in Blackburn, uh, there are stories of uh train loads of Scots coming down at four o'clock in the morning and full of drink and falling asleep on people's doorsteps and causing mayhem around the around the town as it was then. So it, it really was a massive event in uh, the Scottish year. And to the English, it just wasn't the same. It was just another game, really. They wanted to beat Scotland, but uh, it it wasn't a national event like it was north of the border.
1: One, uh, one other thing that I can add to this, uh, which illustrates um, Glenn's point about um, England not being very good at this period uh, and Scotland being quite reasonably very good, there were obviously no world rankings at though that at that point, but we do have a thing called the ELO ratings, which um a very useful tool. Um it was first developed for chess, and, and um you can rank it's so it's kind of a zero-sum sort of way that you can rate people and, and rate people and, and teams. And um what also what good thing about it is that it's retrospective as well, unlike the, the FIFA rankings, which started in I think '93. Um, we can actually go and, and and the person who runs ELO have gone back till till the, the dawn of time, eighteen seventy two, and started ranking uh, teams. Um, and at this point, um, Scotland was fourth ranked team in the world, and England were thirteenth. So that shows you um, where where the two teams were.
0: And at the time, England hadn't won a game at Wembley since nineteen twenty four. Now. There wasn't the frequency of fixtures as now, but again, another indicator of, of where England were at this time. And actually they were, they were quite a poor side as the as the record seemed to suggest.
2: It also left uh, FIFA arguments over payments to amateurs. Uh, and because of the first world War, they were not playing uh, they didn't trust any of the central European teams for example they only played belgium and france i think in the 1920s uh, apart from the the home nations so it was a glorious isolation and we still thought we were the best
1: exactly i mean fifa was was a non entity i mean well, sorry fifa was a person non grata basically for the fa they would looked down on this, this small french sort of like upstart um idea of of an international football thing and it had nothing to do with it this is why england don't appear in a world cup till 1950 because they would they thought that with utter snobbery they thought this was utter rubbish and they didn't want you know the, the johnny foreigner to come over and sort of like play a, any games um interestingly later on as well scotland are very very dominant especially at wembley as well um england do win in 1934 but then um they don't they go on a run of um uh, not winning again since till 1955 at Wembley against Scotland. Uh, uh, Scotland are, are magnificent at this time, um, beating England up, uh, at Wembley all the time. And of course, as well, don't forget in in, in this time, again to to, to show you that the, the illustrate how how what what it was like in the time. They never they didn't used to play. Uh, the other home championship games at Wembley, that, that Wales would probably be played at Old Trafford or, or Goodison Park, or or, or uh, you know, uh, um, and the the Irish games were played somewhere in the Midlands. Only that the game against Scotland was was good enough for Wembley. Um, it was built in in the in the in the twenties, and for the, like the first up until the up until the Second World War, the only team that was allowed really to come to Wembley and play England was Scotland. And they would come there and they would win a hell of a lot of the time.
0: As we move into the 1950s, that's when England, that superiority that they've always felt they've had as a as a nation on the football pitch really started to show. That, and some legendary players starting to, to to play for England in this time, the likes of... Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney, and we're really starting to move into quite an iconic era for football. And from an England point of view, England were getting better. They were getting stronger. And in 1961, there was a fixture against Scotland where they emphatically showed that they were superior winning by nine goals to three Saturday, the 15th of April, 1961. And, if you've if you've not watched it yet, I would go and have a look at the footage of this game. If only just for the commentary on it. It's one of those old Pathé Newsreel style reports and the, the commentators making witty remarks about the crowd. He's throwing in some, some Scottish impressions, something you wouldn't get away with today very much of its time. But 12 goals in this game, England superior and they're 3-0 up inside 30 minutes. Bobby Robson and two for Jimmy Greaves. The second, which comes from a fumble from Scotland goalkeeper Frank Haffy. And it's Haffy's performance in this game that contributes to the stereotype of bad Scottish goalkeepers. And the joke that was popular for years after what time is it? Nine
2: past Haffy. Before half time, a third and slow motion shows a mistake by Haffy, pounced on by Greaves. Just my cuppa, mate. Scotland took up the tail in the second half and began to look like taking revenge. In three minutes, Dave Mackay's free kick got right through. Almost at once, a Davy Wilson hitter made it 2-3. Intoxicating football. England, however, had their own ideas and drove down towards the Scots goal. A sharp free kick, happy fumbles, a Douglas shot, and
0: it's 4-2. To come back to the point I was making about this being quite an iconic period in football history, Davey, when you look at the teams, both teams, not just England, but Scotland as well, some of the players who are playing in this game, Bobby Robson, Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law, Ian St. John, Dave Mackay. They're legends, not just of this era, but of all time in football.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you, you, you've, you're you missing them as well. Johnny Haynes, Fulham, the captain of the team. Johnny Haynes, legend, Fulham. Uh, Jimmy Arnfield, who would come on to be, um, go on to be England um, captain as well. Uh, there, uh, Ron Flowers, um Jimmy Greaves was um, I think my favourite though. He was such a wonderful, wonderful, natural goal scorer. And he scored, he scored a hat-trick in in this game. Haynes got a couple, Bobby Smith got a couple, and and Bobby Robson as well, the future England manager got a few. But uh, yes, as you said, the Scottish side as well, when they're not, they're not a bad team. Even though they got thrashed 9-3. Uh, yeah, Ian St. John that we all know, Saint and Greavesy. In fact, here's a game where the great Saint and Greavesy are playing against each other. Uh, Dennis Law, uh, you know, Dave Mcpie Billy McNeil, um, Eric Caldo was was the captain that day. It's um, yeah, it's it's a staggering result, really. Um, maybe it's 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 the sign of the times that are coming over. Obviously, um Walter Winterbottom is still. The manager at this point, but but England are really starting to find some fantastic talent, uh, uh in, in, in England, so it's absolutely wonderful, sort of like, um, a uh, fascinating score. And, and and the attendance is getting a little bit better as well. Now we've got 97,000 just over 97,000 people attending, so not only are they starting to entertain, but we, we, we're getting the crowds are responding to that.
0: And in the game, England were 3-0 up. But early in the second half, Dave Mackay pulled a goal back for Scotland before Davy Wilson headed in at the back post to make it 3-2. England then restored their two-goal lead through Brian Douglas. But we then enter a period of the game, six goals in 11 minutes. First of all, Bobby Smith, he makes it 5-2. Pat Quinn pulls one back for Scotland a minute later. This is 76 minutes. And then two for Johnny Haynes, Greaves again, and another for Smith makes it 9-3. It's England's biggest victory in the fixture. And in winning, they also wrap up the Home International Championship for 1961. And as you say, a real demonstration of the talent that England possessed at this time. Let's just move on six years to the day, in fact. Saturday 15th of April 1967 and Scotland enacting revenge and in doing so record one of their most famous victories over England who by this point were world champions now managed by Alf Ramsey. He'd taken over in 1962 from Walter Winterbottom and he'd won the World Cup for the Three Lions on home soil in 1966. And when you look at this England team, it's basically the team that wins the World Cup the year before, but Jimmy Greaves is the one change for Roger Hunt. Hunt is in the squad, but Jimmy Greaves is in his place. And another game that it's worth going back and watching the highlights because it's frenetic
2: stuff. Yes. uh, Another massive day for Scotland. I mean... The, the effect of England winning the World Cup was almost humiliating for them. They, they didn't like to see that. And England were on this great run under Ramsey. They'd really found that winning combination. Uh, the wingless wonders. Uh, and they, they expected to beat Scotland. Um, but Scotland did play well on, on the day. But as so often happened in this period before substitutes, uh, one or two injuries early on could really... Skew the game, and you, they were very difficult to predict. Were England Scotland games always? There were a few nasty injuries in in previous games, and here, uh, I think England Jack Charlton broke his toe, as uh, had to play up front. Uh, I think there were a couple of other injuries as well. Uh, so Scotland were effectively beating an eight man team, uh, and they almost lost it as well. They gone through or not, but England came back at them, got two goals. Charlton scored even with his broken toe. Uh, and then Scotland, uh, they tried to humiliate England. They, they, there was a, Somebody had remarked that when England are on top of Scotland, they humiliate them by scoring lots of goals. They just try to score as many as possible as they had done in the 9-3. Uh, but when Scotland get ahead of England and they're starting to dominate, they want to humiliate England by little tricks. And you, you might have seen the video of Jim Baxter juggling with the ball down by the halfway line and the crowd all as they passed the ball around. They they just wanted to make England look uh, foolish, really. But England were still world champions. They'd won the bigger prize, but that was certainly Scotland's day.
0: So the, the story of the game was Dennis Law put Scotland ahead on 27 minutes. He had earlier missed a big opportunity on the stretch. It was a ball in from the right-hand side. He's at full stretch, but it's an empty goal. And somebody of Law's quality, he'd have expected to put that one away. He does open the scoring on the rebound, flicking the ball into the net after Gordon Banks had saved a shot from Billy Wallace. Bobby Lennox put Scotland 2-0 up with 12 minutes remaining, and they look on course for victory. But Jack Charlton, as you say, up front, hobbling around, pulls a goal back, and he doesn't even celebrate. He's just limping away because, of course, he couldn't be substituted. He's, he's having to play on, but he scores. Jim McCallier then makes it 3-1 to Scotland, but England reply again, Jeff Hurst with a header. In the end, it wasn't to be for England. It wasn't quite enough, and Scotland pull off a famous victory. They then dub themselves the unofficial world champions in the aftermath. And I just want to highlight, though, a few things. So the Scottish team, four of them are from Celtic, and... They helped Celtic in in the same year win the European Cup. In fact, it was the following month. So it shows you the kind of pedigree that the Scotland team had. And then you think of players like Billy Bremner, Dennis Law, Jim Baxter, who was a a great player. So there's a lot of quality in this team. And you look at both sides, the the ability on show really is is quite something. And I just want to draw attention to now Sir Ralph Ramsey, his post-match comments which was Scotland deserved their victory but I hope they will accept it as a fact rather than an excuse when I say that they were heavily handicapped by injuries so I think Ramsey's being gracious but he's almost saying to them yeah, you've had your win but you know get back in your box don't get too carried away we were struggling at the end there and uh, just remember that
1: Ramsey yeah. always loved a good dig and he did it in it, he had had, he was a, such, a, such a wonderful, he, he had this, um, obviously he was a, a Dagenham chap, when he had this accent that which he so desperately tried to shed all his life to make himself very, very, very posh, but sometimes he came out with such a some lovely jibes uh, as well, so I, mean, I could absolutely see him absolutely saying that. Um, yeah, so I think Scotland wanted it more at the end, they desperately wanted it to be England, of course they do, and, and, I think I think yeah the injuries. I think Greaves was hampered as well. Um, yeah. um Wilson. Yeah. Wilson's the other one, isn't well, he? Yeah. You know, Wilson. so England were, were were walking wounded at the end of the game. Um, I, I don't I seem to remember it not, but I've seen I've watched it all the way through. It wasn't particularly a very exciting match until the very end, really, when when it kind of we had you had three goal well you had uh, four goals in the last 11, 11 minutes. So and yeah, I, I you know I, Scotland deserved it they wanted it more um what can you say you know they're unofficial world champions i think there's a website i think where you can actually trace the roots back from that game and it still goes on i don't know who the unofficial world champions are i know it's like a head-to-head base so if you beat the the previous people the winners then you carry on so i don't know who the unofficial world champions are right now but it's very interesting if you go look that up yeah
2: Scotland were actually quite unlucky during that decade. As we've said, they had some fantastic players and and they should have qualified for something for the World Cup. I think they were quite fancied to get to England for the 66 World Cup, but they they messed up against Poland at home uh, and then lost to Italy. And it was all over. So this was their making up for that, I think. And of course, it was a European Championship qualifier as well. Yeah, this
1: is this is this is something that 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 happened in these. So the home championship was a ready-made tournament. Uh, so FIFA used it in the um, qualifying for the 1950 World Cup and the 54 World Cup, and UEFA did it for the 1968 uh, Championship. I think England get their revenge later because the 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 the, the return fixture at Hampden, uh, they draw one all with Scotland and they qualify. Only one team would qualify um, for the. Um, uh, nineteen sixty-eight euros. But in those days, the quarterfinals were not played. Only the semifinals and finals were played. They they played Spain, um, in a quarterfinal. I don't think no, they, they they did win because they 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 do go to and they get beaten by Soviet Union. I I I believe. I I think Yugoslavia. I Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia. Sorry. Um, I think yeah. It's, that... Soviet Union. They play in the, in in the third players playoff, don't they?
2: Yes, um, that's right. Um,
1: so yeah, so these little ready-made tournaments. It's funny that the that the. the uh, going back slightly, that the FIFA decided to do this, but I could see why they did it. They thought, you know, the, the, you've got this championship which has been going since 1884. That'll be group one of the World Cup qualifiers, and then, then we, we'll do a draw. Mm-hmm. We don't need to draw. So this happened quite a lot of the time. In 1950, it was obviously in South America, the World Cup. So England came first and Scotland came second, but the top two were allowed to go. Uh, Scotland declined that. They, they, they said... Um, oh no only the winners should go uh, but really it was down to the fact that it cost quite a penny to to get on the boat to south america 1954 um it was in europe so um they came second again and they didn't have any qualms about finishing second that time <laughs> um in, but in the 1968 uh, championship um um it was only the top team so england did get their revenge on 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 scotland that day uh, the following year and they qualified for the 68 euro yeah
2: and that that should have been enough for Scotland to qualify. I mean, winning at Wembley in '67 put them in pole position. They only had, i say, only Ireland and Wales still play Northern Ireland and Wales. But they they lost to Northern Ireland in Belfast the following season. Uh, so that meant that they had to beat England at Hampden uh, to qualify. And it was a that was quite a bad-tempered game. There was a players have mentioned that the build-up to that was more tense than any previous England-Scotland game. They, they felt that there was so much at stake in that. Uh, and on the day, England were the better team. It was a 1-1 draw. But I think they, even the Scots admitted that uh, they were lucky to get a, a point. So England had sort of got their revenge in that game. And I'm not sure there's been uh, as big a, a home championship game since then. I think that was... One of the last where they were there was there was so much at stake and both teams were at full strength because the year after that it became a end of season tournament and then as you move into the 70s that unfortunately coincided with lots of English clubs getting to European finals so they were losing players even the reason for moving it to the end of the season was so that more players would be available but the opposite happened
0: and you mentioned yeah, yeah. the the 70s Sorry. there as well. Just to move into nineteen seventy three quickly, the the teams played twice in this year, and the reason for the second fixture is a centenary match at Hampden Park, and again it's a memorable night for England and and one to forget for Scotland. This,
2: yeah, it was. It's five um, nil for England at Hampden. It was a very snowy night, very icy night. I think it was fourteenth of February, uh, and. England were just all over them. I think it might have been the first game for Scotland with, um, was it William Holland in charge? Uh, but they were, they were completely out of sorts. England had a good run that year until they faced Poland in the, the World Cup qualifiers. But uh, before then, they'd, they'd scored quite a few goals. You had Shannon and Chivers and Alan Clark. All the Cs uh, were, were scoring goals. And I think uh, Peter Lorimer scored an own goal for Scotland that night. Um, England just all over them they played later that year at Wembley and it was a much closer game with England winning 1-0 um, but it didn't seem to reach the same um, nobody seemed to have the same enthusiasm for this one-off centenary game as they did for the, the traditional Wembley fixture
1: it was also Bobby Moore's 100th cap That night. yes,
2: that is true third, third player to
1: reach um, a centenary English England player
0: but it's another one of those Wembley fixtures in 1977 that is a memorable day for Scotland mm. as they win 2-1 at Wembley in jubilee year it was a a match which on the pitch was decided by a Gordon McQueen header from uh, a free kick by Don Masson and then the second half Scotland go 2-0 up it's a it's a scrappy goal when you when you watch it back it's Kenny Dalglish has a shot that's blocked There's three England defenders around there, plus Ray Clements, but none of them can get to the ball as Dalglish manages to squirm it over the line. And in it goes, England are 2-0 down. And England do respond. Trevor Francis is brought down in the box by McQueen and England have a penalty. And uh, Shannon steps up and makes it 2-1. But this game really is remembered for what came next. The thousands of tartan-clad Scots invading the pitch, ripping up sections of the turf and snapping one of the crossbars in the celebrations. And the Wembley pitch. Perhaps one shouldn't say anything uh, other than critical about this because crowd invasions have
2: been one of the reasons why fences have gone up everywhere and indeed are going up at Wembley. And you're really divided between appreciating the delight of the Scottish fans but not wanting to see the
1: ground pulled apart like this. They've even knocked the goals down and broken the crossbar.
0: From an England point of view, it, this game was a damaging defeat for the team. But Davy, would you say also that this was quite a damaging result for the then manager, Don Reeve?
1: Yes, absolutely. Don't forget, this is that period of time when... Um, England failed to qualify for two consecutive World Cups. Um they Alf Ramsey is 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 dis, is dismissed. Uh, Don Revy comes in after a small uh, tenure by Joe Mercy, comes in as a caretaker manager. Don Revy who who um has uh, lit the, the the first division up at, at Leeds um comes in and um yeah this is uh this is a, a, a big moment. This is this is an also a weird match because it's played in June. Um, in '77, which is quite rare, and um, yeah, um, it, <coughs> Scotland are the, the the two the two centre backs uh, McQueen and Mcgrain. Sorry, Mcgrain. I don't think Mcgrain centre back is he? he's, he's. I think he's a uh, right back. But they were apparently they were just hours of of, of of strength in this game, and and um, it made it difficult for England to get anywhere near the goal. Basically, that they 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 got a consolation penalty right at the end. Uh but um it was it was quite a um I wouldn't say it was a shock because I think Scotland at this period were probably the better team, I think, in this period in 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 the in the late 70s with with, with some of the, you know, got Kenny Dougleis, Bruce Riot, Gordon McQueen, Joe Jordan, Asa Hartford, you know, you've got some Archie Gemmel, Lou McCari. I mean, you got some great names there. So I wouldn't necessarily say that this was too much of a shock, really. But what happens afterwards with all the Scottish fans, you know,
2: hanging off the goalpost, breaking the goalposts, I mean, that's what makes this, this game memorable, I guess. Yeah, it was the second win in a row for Scotland, They'd won in 76 at Hampden. Uh, and things are going from bad to worse for Don Reeve, uh, as David said. Uh, the World Cup qualifiers, they'd lost to Italy. Uh, the feeling was that he... he he couldn't seem to make up his mind what his best team was. Uh, there were too many players being used. Uh, they'd lost already at Wembley that year to Holland, uh, to Wales in the same week to a Lane James penalty. And there was not a lot of confidence. And then uh, they went off to South America after this. Drew three games against Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay. But at the same time, Don Reevy was uh, negotiating his departure from the England team. Uh, to the Emirates, I think. Uh, and yeah, I don't think his heart was in it. Uh, and I think the media were giving him a bit of a, a grilling at the time as well, which they always do when England aren't playing well. So after that, England
0: get a bit of revenge the following year, 1978. They win 1-0 at Hamden. They then win the next two before Scotland win again at Wembley in 1981. It's a John Robertson penalty that secures them a 1-0 victory. This was now really the last knockings of the home championship. It ended in 1984. A number of reasons really behind that. Being overshadowed by World Cup and European Championships for one. Falling attendances at all of the games bar the England-Scotland ones. Fixture congestion, which we touched upon there with English teams doing well in Europe. There was a rise of hooliganism and also a desire from England to play against stronger teams. I think as much as the the passion and the excitement was there by virtue of the, the local rivalries that, that were part of the home championships, I think England did want to start to play more regularly against better opposition. And that meant looking out more to the world and, and playing more games against teams from, from across Europe and beyond. And, England-Scotland continues to be played until 1989 under the umbrella of a new competition, the Rouse Cup, a mini tournament which initially just involves England and Scotland, and then in later years, an invited guest team from South America. We have, I think we have Columbia one year, and England played Chile another year in the late 80s. But England's 2-0 victory at Hampden in 1989 is the final England-Scotland fixture to be played in that regular sequence going back as far as 1872. This game, it's famous for Steve Ball's debut, then of third division Wolves, comes in, scores a goal. And at that point, I think as well with hooliganism had been rife in in English football, it did seem like the appetite perhaps wasn't there, more for safety reasons as much as anything else, to prevent this fixture from going ahead and, and, you know, stop things from getting out of hand every year. Did did it feel right almost that the England-Scotland fixtures were brought to a, an end on a regular basis?
2: Yes, uh, I think it did. It was uh, the late eighties. I mean, I quite enjoyed going to football during that period, but I could see that uh, people were moving away from the game. Uh, a lot of it was hooliganism. You had the disasters of Heysel and Bradford and then Hillsborough. Uh, uh, and the yeah the England Scotland games were losing importance. I think that last game at Hampden was on the Saturday, and on the Friday night it was the Liverpool Arsenal uh, championship decider where Arsenal won it in the last minute. And I'm pretty sure that far more people would have been watching that game than the Scotland England game, which would be on on grandstand on the on the Saturday afternoon. So certainly in England. Uh, Interest in these fixtures had, had waned quite a lot. I think possibly in Scotland as well. Uh, it, it was the right thing for England to do, uh, freeing up parts of the, the calendar for more um, fixtures that were going to test them, really. And, and they did so well in the World Cup in 1990, then there, there was no reason to look back at uh, bringing back Scotland fixtures or, or the home championships. Sad that that was for those for those countries. I mean, you did feel sorry for them because they were making a lot of money out of those games. But uh, yeah, they also had to look towards European Championships and World Cups uh, and develop themselves.
0: I remember some mumblings of trying to get the fixture going again in the nineties, but I don't think it ever really got far, other than just an idea or a thought as such. But. It's seven years before England and Scotland play each other again. They're drawn together in Group A at Euro 96, which is being hosted in England. And it means that Scotland and England will face off again, this time at Wembley. To give a bit of context as to where the teams were coming into this game, in the opening match of the tournament, England had drawn 1-1 against Switzerland in, in quite a lackluster display that people were not really too excited about. And Scotland held the Dutch to a draw. So both teams coming into this match in, in similar positions, certainly in terms of points in the table. But Davy, I think England were under pressure coming into a game against Scotland. And not only because of their place in the European Championships at stake, but the the pressure of this game and knowing what the consequences would have been had they lost it.
1: Absolutely, and don't forget because they were hosts, they haven't played a competitive fixture because uh, they didn't go to the ninety-four World Cup. Um, uh, Taylor was sacked. We got Venables in. Uh, they hadn't played a competitive fixture for t- two years now. There was sunshine on top of that um, w- was the fact that England had lost. They only lost one game, I think, which was against Brazil, which is not a bad team to lose to, I guess. So um, there was a little bit of confidence, but. Despite a good start in the first fixture against Switzerland, um, they give away a, a a bad penalty and end the game one all. Um, Scotland also do rather well. They uh, draw with the Netherlands. Uh, so this is probably I, I now I remember this game distinctly. I remember exactly where I was and who I was watching it with, and there was a massive amount of pressure. We did not know what England could do, I don't think. Um, everybody was well behind Terry Venables. He was an exciting manager. He was playing, um, you know, uh, different systems. Um, but we hadn't had any competitive games. And the first well, first game against Switzerland was a bit of a letdown. So going into this game, the tension was unbearable. I seem to, you know, not. I don't think I slept the night before. I couldn't. Um, I, I couldn't. I don't think. Um, it was, it was. I see. I seem to remember being very hot as well that day. Um, and of course, the first half is not so great for, for an England and um, perspective. It's 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 mm. Scotland are causing England lots of problems. So Venables is forced into a change. He changes. He brings on Redknapp at half time for for Stuart Pierce, and it changes the game. And and, and we have um. Obviously, Alan Shearer scoring the first goal. Uh, Gary Neville crosses the ball over, and it's um, you know uh, a Shearer. Um, I think he hits a header, isn't it? Is it a header? He heads it. Yeah. yeah. Gorham, doesn't he? Yeah. And then, um, but then, <laughs> but then Scotland get back into the game. They get a penalty, and um, I'm at this point. My I can't. I don't think I can watch. I did. I, I couldn't. I couldn't watch this. But. Thankfully, David Seaman guesses right, and um, he kind of like if you watch the video, he kind of like gets it on his elbow. The ball hits his elbow, and he yeah. pushes it away. And exactly, and I've timed this exactly sixty seconds later. Everybody knows what happens. Uh, Gascoigne pinks the ball up over Colin Hendry and whacks it in the in the bottom corner, and that's exactly sixty seconds from when 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 Seaman saves that goal. So it's. Um, It's a wonderful thing and this is now the 79th minute and it's 2-0 to England and um, we're up and running in in a championship, we've beaten the old enemy again and everybody in England is absolutely ecstatic. And we partied into the night as far as I can remember and and probably the weekend.
2: Here's Gascoigne, oh brilliant!
1: Goal by Gascoigne. What a pertinent
2: answer to all his critics.
0: For Paul Gascoigne, a, a nice bit of redemption for him after the pillaring that he got in the press after the Switzerland performance. He comes back to a point where it, the Daily Mirror publish an apology to him and, and all is forgiven, you're the hero again. And, and, don't, and don't forget, he's playing for Glasgow
1: Rangers at this time as well.
0: Scottish player of the year, exactly. Yeah. So it was it was all perfect. The dentist chair celebration, we know it so well now. And that 60 seconds, as you say, David, one of the most memorable minutes of football in England's history. It's just ingrained yeah. in, in the minds of everybody who saw it.
1: There's only one sad thing about this game, is that later on Redknapp gets injured in the last five minutes and, and he's out for the rest of the tournament because his introduction by Venables at halftime seriously changed that game um so it was sad that that um a player like that who who made such an impact would was, was out who knows what might have happened if Redknapp had um, carried on and we all know what happens in the next game which is probably one of the i know it's not england scotland but we have to mention it it's probably one of the single most ex- exhilarating england performances that i've ever uh, witnessed so um when england beat uh, netherlands 4-1 and England even have the temerity to concede a late goal, which then knocks Scotland out of <laughs> progressing to the uh, quarterfinals, which I'm sure they they meant to do. So that even 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 there, they're still rubbing the salt into the wound for Scotland. Sorry, uh, Scottish fans, I do apologise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, that sets England on their way to Euro '96 and and the brilliant run to the semi-finals, and. Three years later, qualification for the next European Championships that's being hosted in Belgium and the Netherlands. England, all changed. Venables has gone. He went after Euro 96. Glenn Hoddle's come in. He's taken England to the 98 World Cup. He's managed England in the the first period of this qualification group, although they're not doing particularly well in Group 5. They lose the opening game to Sweden in Stockholm 2-1. They're struggling, really. There's a, a goalless draw at home to Bulgaria. And they, they, they're they not looking as accomplished a side as they did in the previous qualification campaign for World Cup 98. And we all know the reasons why Glenn Hoddle left the job. It's the quotes in the Telegraph and the whole saga around that. So Hoddle moves on. He's replaced by Kevin Keegan. Keegan gets England to the playoffs for qualification. And on the 13th of October, 1999, the draw for said playoffs is made. Craig Brown, who recently sadly passed away, he'd led Scotland to the playoffs as well. They're runners up to the Czech Republic in group nine. And when the draw is made for the playoffs, who else comes out? England against Scotland. And we've now got this rivalry over a two-legged tie to decide who goes to the European championships. Glenn, do you remember this and what the feeling was like when this draw was made?
2: Uh, I do. There was a certain inevitability about it. Uh, Eight teams in there, England and Scotland are two of them. We're going to get Scotland, aren't we? Yeah. And lo and and behold, we did. Uh, It was, it was not a great period for England. Uh, Things had gone quite sour under Hoddle, As you've said, the start of the European championship campaign, uh, Discipline seemed to be going. I mean, Paul Ince was sent off in Sweden. Then Keegan took over, and Scholes was sent off in the return against Sweden. Then David Batty was sent off in Poland. Keegan came in under uh, his successors with Fulham, uh, but I'm not sure there was many other people in the frame. Uh, he was he was a great motivator. Was Keegan and initially well. We were way behind Sweden in that group. Uh, he pulled us back into it, got us into a playoff position. Uh, and we, we were just grateful for that at that time, I think. They, they'd not been playing well at all. And it came to the uh, playoff with Scotland. And we did really well on that day. It was a Saturday afternoon. Paul Scholes popped up with a couple of goals in the first half. And it seemed like the tie was over uh four, four days later back at wembley scotland were much much better prepared i think and and i think we were actually a bit complacent we never got on going at all uh i i just remember it had been a very poor performance by england uh scotland got the goal from uh, don hutchison i think and then we were really sweating in that second half we couldn't seem to put passes together and we were just hanging on uh, the end of that match I think Scotland took a lot of pride they were they were celebrating the fact that they'd won at Wembley but we'd actually managed to qualify I wasn't sure how and I wasn't confident in what we'd do when we got to the tournament uh, but somehow we'd got over the line
1: England go Scotland stay when all the Cries and battle hymns died down. It was them or us. And for Kevin Keegan's Club England and its supporters, it was us. But only just. Yeah, I, all I can add to, to that is that yeah, the Skull's brilliant Paul Skull's um, scores, two amazing goals uh, in in the first leg. It's it's a it's a we talk of game of two halves. This is this is a, 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 a Two legs of two hours basically. Um, in in at Hamden, the, the away leg, England are are well. Paul goals is magnificent. It's quite a dirty game as well. There are ten yellow cards, five for each team. Um, and then in the second leg, back at Wembley, uh, back at Old Wembley, it's um it's the other way around. Scotland are are very dominant, and they come so close to getting that equaliser. I'm not entirely what what would have happened if they had. They'd already scored just before half time, Don Hotchison, as Glenn said. Um, and if they'd actually got that equalizer, who knows uh, what would have happened. I'm guessing uh extra time and penalties, you know, to start off with. But um I I I I, I suspect if they'd managed to get that, they could have gone on to to, to win that tie quite easily. Keegan was um, I thought I, I love Keegan as a player, as a manager wasn't my favorite he he was too emotional i always thought he he i mean and, and yeah you want that sometimes you want you want that emotion but it, sometimes it, it became it too much and and i don't think he he quite had um quite had it and, and 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 then we we find out very very soon afterwards after losing to germany in the final game at wembley um he resigned straight away without even thinking about it just right that's it i'm done i think he was feeling the pressure um um, of it so yeah he wasn't my favourite England manager but England get to that Euro 2000 but of course I mean again talking about rivalries we beat the other old enemy Germany but um, lose you know, the, you know the other two games even even being 2-0 up against Portugal which was a very exhilarating start but then lose that 3-2 and of course um, a game against uh, um, a game against uh, Romania where um, Phil Neville gives that um, penalty away. The very dying seconds, and um, we're out. And yes, two thousand. This period of time was not a great time to uh, to support England in, in 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 you know the late nineties, early early noughties, Really, that whole period. I don't think England were were very good to be to be brutal, and and Scotland came close to to qualifying. And I I you know I, I wouldn't have begrudged them if they had. England were better in the first leg. Scotland were a lot better in the second leg. If I actually, I think Scotland were bit a bit in the first leg, they were they're actually a bit unlucky, really, because they play well as well. And and, and it's only Skulls' two goals, very good goals, which um which seal it for England. So I think Scotland can can account themselves very unlucky in this fixture.
0: They hit the bar, don't they, as well in that first leg, Billy Dodds. With an effort outside of the boot. I think it's not long after England have scored. And yeah, it's after Skulls' second. They Scotland go up the other end and almost reduce the deficit. And they were a little bit unlucky there. There's then in the second leg the big save from David Seaman. I think it's a cross that gets flicked on, and then Christian Daly comes in the full pelt. And if it's either side of Seaman, it's a goal. But Seaman's there and he makes a reaction save and I almost look at this game and then you look at what happened at Euro 2000. It's it's almost... The seeds are there, really. Yeah, yeah. the seeds are there, aren't they? The worry about Kevin yeah. Keegan's management. You know, England get themselves into a good position. And then, and then throw it there. Yeah. Which is what happens. Isn't
1: that, I mean, it just so happens. It's what happened against Portugal. It's what happened against uh, um, Romania. The, the only saving grace in that tournament, Germany, were even worse than England were. <laughs> and that's why england managed to win by, by by a solitary Sierra goal so thankfully we managed to you know and, and i guess it 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 it, it, it makes you feel a little bit better because we've beaten germany and 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 i get i wanted to make this point really about the the entire england scotland um rivalry it's very similar to the england german rivalry as it's almost kind of like one way thing scotland find in in de- they, they, they always want to beat, always want to beat England. I don't think English players or England fans are, they're not their, their biggest rivalry. Just like between, we have this fast absolute fascination with England-Germany. You know, we always have to beat them. It's it's one of the biggest rivalries. For the Germans, they don't care. They, they, the, the, the Dutch are probably their biggest rivals or in the, in the south of Germany, probably the Italians. That's what they care about. They don't care about the English. So, and, and I guess it's kind of like what it, it must be, for, for for the Scottish, you know, you know, they always want to beat the England. After that national pride, they have to beat have to beat those Sassanacs, you know. Um, and you know, it, it's it's, you know, I, I guess Downey is that's what drives those 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 wonderful. I mean, there are great games, of course, absolutely great games, and I think that's why the Scots are really, really, absolutely. Every time they do actually win, they have a massive party. And I don't blame them. I wish you know sometimes you know we would do that more often,
2: yeah, I love some of the sense of humor that they come out with, and uh, you know the the heroes of Scottish football are people like Maradona uh, or <laughs> Gareth Southgate for missing the penalty. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Or or was it Andy Murray wearing, you know, any anybody but England and wearing, you know, yeah. a shirt of the different, uh, you know, uh, whoever England were playing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. Absolutely. Yeah. If, that's, if that's what you need yeah. to do to, 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 you know, you know, get through it, get through it because you didn't qualify for the tournament, then fair dues to you.
0: So after this Euro 2000 qualifier, England, Scotland, don't play each other again for 14 years. Until 2013, when it's uh, an FA 150th year celebration match at Wembley. Roy Hodgson is in charge of England by this point and quite an entertaining game. It was uh, Scotland who took the lead 11 minutes in, James Morrison. Theo Walcott equalises for England. Scotland then go back ahead through Kenny Miller early in the second half. Danny Welbeck equalises a few minutes later. For England. And then Ricky Lambert comes off the bench and, with his first touch in international football from Leighton Baines Corner, scores the goal to make it 3 2. And that ultimately proves to be the winner. And then a year later, England go to Parkhead, Celtic Park, and play Scotland in a friendly. It finishes 3 1, goals for Alex Oxlade Chamberlain and two for Wayne Rooney either side of an Andy Robertson consolation, and England win that 1-3-1 in November 2014. And then after that, the two teams are drawn together in qualifying for the 2018 Russia World Cup. Gareth Southgate, he's now England manager, albeit on a caretaker basis for the first game, which is a 3-0 victory over Scotland at Wembley in November 2016. Southgate having taken charge in the wake of the bung scandal and Sam Allardyce's faux pas that cost him the England job when he had it after only one match in charge. But in the return leg, Scotland are so close to getting that victory that they so desire against England and from their point of view, which would have been long overdue. Now, Glenn, it was For the most part, I think quite a drab affair this game. Nothing happens really for the first 70 minutes until Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain scores for England. It's a throw-in that finds its way to the box. He cuts inside on his left foot, deflected shot and goes in. And then all of a sudden, Lee Griffiths steps up. He's not a regular for Celtic at this point by any means, but he very nearly wins it for Scotland with a pair of brilliant
2: free kicks. Yeah. I'm not sure how long was left of that. Yeah. The the first one was perfectly curled into the top corner. I think beating Joe Hart and then
0: three minutes. I think it was three minutes, wasn't it? He 87 and 90. Yeah. 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 The first one comes about where Gary Cahill's a judge to have fouled Ryan Fraser with a high boot, And that's when the first free kick 25 yards, he bends it over the wall and, and passed, Joe Hart and then yeah, four minutes later it's Jake Livermore, he slips and fouls Chris Martin England are on the ropes at this point as well, having conceded the equaliser Scotland getting the balls forward and looking to cause havoc and it's Griffiths
2: again with with a, a moment of inspiration oh, Almost identical free kick, I think he didn't even go in the same corner and Joe Hart again just couldn't get to it and you think, how has this happened? You know, England had the game won seemingly and all of a sudden the Scots are now, they're going to win it. They're going to have that long-awaited victory. Uh, but then uh, Harry Kane, as he did so often during that season or that campaign, I think it was the third time in that campaign he'd scored goals in the in added time at the end of 90 minutes. Was it 96 minutes, something like that? Uh, 93rd minute. Um, so we, we got out of jail certainly in that one.
1: It's Griffiths again. He scored again. Sensational! <laughs> Lightning strikes twice in no time at all, and Lee Griffiths has ripped himself into Scottish football folklore. And England on the verge of victory, and now on the verge of defeat. It's going to be Eric Dyer. Oh, it's a good save by Gordon. Headed away by Tierney. And Scotland might counter here. Presented the ball to Carl Walker. Raheem Sterling. Gordon atones for his earlier error. But here's Harry Kane! It's 2-2! What a finish!
2: Scotland, I think, just missed out on the runners-up place. So they missed out on a playoff. Um, So that was their big moment. Big moment for Griffiths as well. But I, I can't remember him doing... That much. Uh, after that, you know that was that was his his big moment. But, uh, yeah, they
1: missed out on goal difference to Slovakia.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, but so like so many Scotland players, that's been said in the past. They they perform on the day. Uh, they become different players against England. Happened maybe more so in the past, but that was this was just another example of it. There, something within them transforms them.
1: That was that was Kane's first captaincy. Um, he was handed the um, captaincy uh, uh, that day, and um, yeah, he scores with almost the last touch um, to spare England's blushes. Absolutely great free kicks. Lee Griffiths, great. They both were just terrific, and they yeah. Scotland deserved to win that game. I remember watching this because it, it was my birthday, and I remember it. I think I was very drunk at the time. A lot of these England Scotland games, I seem to be very drunk at the time. Well. <laughs> Don't know what
2: it is. I remember the Euro 96, uh, like yourself, I was in a bar. And when, uh, when the penalty save and then Gascoigne's goal, I mean, the place completely went wild then. And yeah. it was a very drunken night. Yeah. <laughs> Don't remember too much after it.
0: But that was a, an example, that game of just the brilliant drama that, that happened in this game. I remember actually, yeah, I'd watched the first half at home and I was out for a family birthday and walked into the pub just as it was all... Kicking off in the second half, so there is definitely something about England, Scotland, and pubs. There's a there's a link here somewhere, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the only way we can get through these games. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so England save themselves at the end, or rather, Harry Kane saves England with with a dramatic finish, and the game finishes two two. I think England come out of that thinking, yeah, we've we've got away with it, and we'll we'll take the point and run. England qualify automatically for the 2018 World Cup and eventually go on to a brilliant run to the semi-finals but the teams do meet again and it's the last meeting to date in the covid delayed European Championships of 2020 at Wembley a repeat of 1996 England against Scotland this game again it's not a particularly great game there's there's moments in there and I think it's another example of Scotland raising their game against England because they they play well on the night. They're probably the better team and potentially could have won the game in different circumstances. That what, what's notable about this is that this is played still during COVID restrictions. So there's 20,000 people inside Wembley Stadium. But when you listen to the atmosphere, it sounds like a lot more and they're all Scottish. <laughs> they're all Scottish.
1: Yeah, it, I, am I'm again, remember watching this match, but it, it was, thankfully, this was the middle game of, of the group stage. England had beaten Croatia 1-0, and then they'd um, go on to beat Czech Republic by the same scoreline in the last match. So, just like the last World Cup, they have that blip in the, in the middle game uh, when they drew with USA in the last World Cup. So... It hadn't dampened England fans' expectation at this point. And of course, famously, they, they go on to get to the final with a lot better displays, let's just say. Um, but uh, the, the only real thing that I've the only note that I've got, it's the um, youngest tournament starting 11, 25 years and 31 days average. That's the youngest of any European Championship or World Cup.
0: And that's the the England team, yeah. It's, the England team that day
1: was the youngest yeah. ever starting eleven.
0: Yeah, it's quite it's quite striking when when you go through it. There's Jordan Pickford in goal. Reece James comes in for Kyle Walker, John Stones and Tyrone Mings are the centre halves. Luke Shaw left back. Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice in that very effective pivot that they. Established in that tournament, Mason Mount, twenty-two, Phil Foden, who's twenty-one, Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane, and the oldest player in the team is Tyrone Mings at the age of twenty-eight. So it, yeah, you you do see that that average there of the average age of the England team and the two players who come off the bench, Jack Grealish and Marcus Rashford, are twenty-five and and twenty-three respectively. It's a really good representation of this young vibrant team that that Gareth Southgate has built by this point and even though on the night england are not at their best they have probably the best chance in terms of john stones he he has a header from uh, a mason mount corner that crashes back out off the post and that's as close as england come really to to scoring i think mason mount knocks one just wide not long after but then after that, the, the big chances fall Scotland's way. There's a, a great save Jordan Pickford pulls off from Stephen O'Donnell where he it's a Kieran Tierney cross. O'Donnell hits it first time across goal and Pickford pulls out a brilliant reaction save to, to tip it wide. And yeah, it was it was far from a comfortable night for England, this one. And, and Scotland really, on another night, would feel that they could have won it.
1: Mounts delivery. John Stones is there, hits the post. What a chance for England to take the lead. He seemed to have the freedom of the penalty area he leapt into the air and he strained his neck towards the ball and it was so close to an England opener. Tierney. Decent turn, looking for O'Donnell. Big save and Shea Adams can't turn it home. That's a huge hand from Jordan Pickford. From Stephen O'Donnell. It will certainly feel better in Scotland than it will in England. It was never going to be easy.
2: I think it's often a struggle uh, in the group games where you, you don't really want to give anything away. I mean, England didn't concede a goal in those three group games. I mean, they only scored two goals. Uh, but I, I think th- th- there's a cautious side to it, to it. And Southgate's often been accused of being a bit too defensive. In these situations, but but they they got the job done. They weren't too impressive that night. I remember Graham Sooners saying on the TV afterwards that how how can you think that England have a chance of winning this tournament when they're playing like that? And then and, and the Scots raving about their performance as they always do. But they didn't. I don't think they scored a goal. Oh, they scored one goal in the next game. They lost their two other games, and we went on to play much better. Eventually against Germany and then Ukraine and Denmark. So I think I think it was it was fine from England's point of view in that we didn't we didn't lose the game. I was a bit worried about Che Adams because I thought he was he could have been a potential match winner for Scotland. And that would have been awful for us to lose that game. I think that that would have really uh, stopped the momentum. But it was going really well at, at that time and Southgate was proving us all wrong, I thought, in that tournament. There were a lot of doubts, I think, about Pickford, uh, about Stones about Sterling, and I think all three of them had a brilliant tournament, so all credit to Southgate for sticking with them and knowing who would perform for him, he'd built up that great understanding, as you said, with a really young squad, Uh, and he'd known a lot of them from his his days in charge of the under-21s as well, so there was a lot of trust in that team. I I remember the game against Germany, where Raheem Sterling uh, made a back pass, and Muller was it Muller that almost got in and scored for Germany? Yeah, yeah. And Sterling Sterling was distraught when he saw what he'd done. And I think two other players, Calvin Phillips, maybe Declan Rice, they went straight to Sterling and, you know, patted him on the back and said, don't worry about it. And it just showed the, the team spirit that was in the team at that time. Hopefully still now. I, I still don't, I can't understand how Muller missed that. It's, it's, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. It's like, it's like the going one in, 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 against Germany in Euro yeah. 96. It's like, how do you miss? Or Lineker, uh, 86, you know, when Barnes, to, to try and equalise against Argentina, the hand of God go, you know, it just those goals. How do they not go in? It just looks like it's going straight you for know. the net and then all of a sudden
2: it doesn't. You never forget them, do you? Oh, no, 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 <laughs> absolutely.
0: So that wraps up England versus Scotland up to the modern day, and picking out a few key matches and, and moments across the years. I think we've established the the importance of the fixture over the years, the the passion of the fixture, and and what's at stake, and also that we all seem to go to the pub when England plays Scotland. <laughs> well, <laughs> so maybe. <laughs> so yeah, so I'll see you at the bar in September yeah. when. England and Scotland face again the latest chapter in the rivalry. The teams are to play at Hamden in a special 150th anniversary heritage match to mark the first meeting between the two sides back in 1872. Hamden Park is playing host to this game on the 12th of September as part of a year-long calendar of events from the Scottish FA to celebrate the history of the association and... Another opportunity for, for the two sides to meet. And again, this this fixture, which has been there from the very beginning, is ongoing and it still has relevance and it still has importance. And I think when the time comes, that game will have plenty of interest around it as well, albeit when it's a friendly.
1: And England have um, some catching up to do when it comes to England Scotland friendlies. They are actually five, eight behind. They, they when, when it comes to competitive matches, they're well ahead. But the friendly games, they, they, they played 15 won, won five, lost eight, drawn two. So England have some catching up to do on, on friendly
2: games. I think it was only the 80s when England caught up with them overall, wasn't it? For most of the history, Scotland had won more than England? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. The current record is now England have
1: won 48 and Scotland won 41 and there have been 26 draws. Uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. For, for, yeah, yeah, Scotland were, were well ahead. Because um, so I
2: remember finding out about that and thought, how how can this be? We're the better team. We've been world champions. But then you <laughs> look back in the history as we've just done and see some of the reasons for it. I mean, there are some anomalies that,
1: that, that England, Scotland have never played in a World Cup. I mean that that needs to needs to happen sometime soon. And you know, because because we've only ever played either in England. Or in Scotland as well. So, you know, we've not had, had that glorious fixture where somewhere in the Middle East or something like that, you know, in a neutral venue that that, that maybe might happen at a World Cup. Yeah. So come on, Scotland, qualify for a World Cup. Yeah, and, and they've got to get England past the group. Play, <laughs> just like England and Wales played uh, back in December, yeah. uh, in November. Um, and it's, yeah. I mean, because we all want home nations
0: to do well, don't we, I guess? Just not against England. That's the interesting point as well. The two competitive tournament games have been on English soil due to England hosting Euro 96 and then the Euro 2020 cross-Europe hosting. But England and Wembley was, was one of the main host venues. And as a result, England played all but one of their games at, at Wembley, aside from the quarterfinal, which was in Rome against Ukraine. Yeah, they managed
1: to, during that 96 uh, Euro, Euro, Euro Championship, they managed, I think it, it wouldn't be allowed now, but they managed to play all their games at Wembley. Uh, that must be, I, I remember Platini during the 98 World Cup, they managed to keep France and Brazil separate so they wouldn't meet until the final, which is a bit of chicanery going on. And I think in the 96 one, they they, they made sure that England were in Group A and all their games if they'd won the group, were at Wembley, which I think is 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 ridiculous um, bias that, that you have, you know. Unfair advantage for the other teams. I wouldn't, don't think you'd allow it now.
2: But in the we 90s, did. it was fair game, apparently. Yeah, uh, we did it in 66 as well. That's true as well, yeah. And when that's Portugal were expecting Portugal were expecting to play us at Goodison Park in the semi-final. And they switched but, it uh, to Wembley. Yeah. But I, I think they'd been a bit canny about it. They were saying they wouldn't, announced the venues until uh, the time I mean, it made sense financially to play the england semi at wembley and ussr west germany at goodison um but yeah i think the portuguese felt a bit um aggrieved by that absolutely another great game and and the one before it against argentina oh, we could talk about that you know
1: all
0: day <laughs> oh yeah we've got we've got loads of episodes to come we can cover all that down the line Um, (laughs) (laughs) so let's let's wrap things up there and that was England against Scotland and that's the first episode of Magnificent Goal Um, my thanks to Glenn first of all for for joining us you can visit England Football Online at englandfootballonline.com and if you're an England fan it's a fantastic resource of all things England it's got match listings player biographies and information about England teams at all levels Thank you to Davy Naylor as well. You can follow England Stats on Twitter at England Stats or visit the website at englandstats.com. A complete database of the England team going back to 1872 with thousands of listings covering players, managers, matches, and again, another brilliant resource for England fans of all ages. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Magnificent Goal, or you can contact us by email on Magnificent Goal podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a positive review in your podcast provider. This will help other England fans find our content. We'll be back soon. Thank you for listening.